Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for joining with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. Uh, here we are finally in this community group season, what we've been speaking to uh, since early October, gathering with others uh, to fellowship, to celebrate communion, worship, uh, opening the scriptures, having conversation together and praying. And of course, as I just mentioned, the key point in all of this is that we are together. We're aware that not everyone may be with someone today for, for whatever reason. Maybe someone's sick or someone's ill or maybe you've chosen not to enter into this season uh, or maybe you're just not able to. You haven't gotten around to it yet or maybe you're up in Philadelphia visiting your daughter-in-law who's having a child as one woman in our church is doing right now. But uh, we hope over this season, over this next 11 weeks, uh, that there will be some yield for all of us a faith that is more practical, a faith that is more personal, and relationships whereby we are actually known. We are looking forward to the yield. Let me just pray for that this morning as we enter into this community group season. Father, we thank you so much for your design. Uh, the design that you are, your spirit, are the only one uh, who brings increase. And so as we gather in this different way, Father, we ask for a different type of of increase, a different type of transformation and resurrection in our souls. We make ourselves available to you. We ask that your spirit would accomplish that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, we're going to be working through the passage of Scripture, well-known, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, well-known as the love chapter, in this series that we're calling RSVP, because all creation requests the honor of your love. We want to introduce or rather double down on the gospel's presence for us to be available in a very particular way to everyone in this way of love. So what I'd like to do is encourage all of you, challenge you all in your community groups to just stop, pause. And I'm going to make a funny face because no matter what I'm doing, you're going to pause at an awkward moment for me. But you're going to go ahead and read within your community group the whole passage of 1 Corinthians 13. I will assume an awkward position. All right. Thank you so much for reading 1 Corinthians 13. Let, let me just pray for the word. Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. We thank you that it is living and active. We believe it. And as it was read in all of these homes all over our community, God, we ask that it would mold us and shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen and amen. You know, just reading that passage out loud for 11 straight weeks will do us well. And I appreciate the reading of scripture more than just kind of silently looking over it. And there's time and place for that. But when we read the scriptures out loud, all of us is being invited into something. Someone is reading it. They are speaking it. We are hearing it. That engagement at a great level does more in all of us. So I'm sure that just the reading of 1 Corinthians 13 will accomplish incredible things. But we want to avail the Spirit of Christ for more than just that. Because while our familiarity with this passage makes us aware of it, I would suggest our familiarity with it also makes us evade it. We're used to it. We are comfortable with it. Because the reality is like very other, uh, very few rather, other scriptures uh, are, are we familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It has a rhythm. It's got a rhythm all its own, weaving poetic words together, but also offering stark truth. 
The simple fact of the matter is for years I've made this comment. And if you are here today or listening to this and you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your uh, wedding ceremony, hey, that's awesome. Um, But I've always cringed at this notion that 1 Corinthians 13 is a wedding ceremony, a marriage ceremony thing. Because it's so much broader, it's so much deeper than just that. I believe it's an unfortunate placement that we would just use 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of a marriage ceremony. It goes so far beyond that. In truth, when you look at the whole of scriptures, 1 Corinthians 13 is is situated before 14 and after 12. I know that's good math, but 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are both speaking to community and gifting. I would suggest that it is indeed this invitation or this, uh, this sinking of love that Paul says is so vital and so important to doing community together that holding gifting in context with love is valuable for all of us. So, Let's get into these words, shall we? Or rather allow these words to get into us and make space for God to transform our lives. We're not gonna tackle the whole passage uh, this morning, but rather 1 Corinthians 13 verses one through three. And Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faiths as, as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And Paul begins this passage with an exposition of if then. And if then statements are inextricably linked, you can't have one without the other. Then forever has the preceding language. It grows from something. It grows from an if. An apple tree doesn't just appear. A seed has to be planted. All our reaped thens have previously sown ifs. If you practice, you will then get better. If you don't read the book, then your book report will be terrible. If you agree to walk the dog, then we'll get one. Are you with me today? If you say yes to my marriage proposal, then I will die to myself for your benefit the rest of my days. That one landed maybe a little bit harshly, but come on somebody. Married people, can I get an amen? Paul's introduction to love, to agape, lends a deeper, wider, and altogether greater substance than what we so often give it in terms of facet or angle. Love is more prevalent than in a marriage context. It's more prevalent than just in a few lasting friendships. It's more prevalent than the parent-child relationship. Paul lobs love as if it is situated at every level of who we are, what we say, what we know and believe, what we do. Right from the outset, Paul lobs love into all those circumstances. Let me work through them. Verse one of 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Can we all agree 
that in the midst of a conversation, if somebody were to just continuously hit a gong, that would be distracting. Unless we are at some play where beating cans, some festival, that's what they're supposed to do. In any other scenario, if there's that type of a thing taking place, i.e. not having love, then there's going to be the fruit of distraction. Verse two, and if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And Paul paints this picture of knowing and believing, having a faith and drawing in the whole context of conversation with Jesus says having faith enough to move a mountain, these prophetic powers, this energy, this ability to see and understand and discern. But if we don't have love, then the result is empty. He continues on. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I'm sacrificial to the nth degree, if I take all that is at my disposal and I offer it and I sow it, but I don't have love, then the gain and again the result is vapid, is nothing. To drill a little bit more, I find these frames configuring all that we are, body, soul, and spirit. When you consider the verbiage that Paul uses, when he speaks to what we say, what we know, what we believe, what we do in our lives, he is encompassing all of who we are, body, soul, and spirit. And while I'm not suggesting that what we say, what we know and believe and what we do is unimportant or that it doesn't matter, if I'm reading Paul's words and unpacking the essence of the Christ towards my tangible life, it seems to say love matters more. Because here's the thing. If we deal honestly with the fact that we live, we all currently live, every single one of us live in an end results justify the means world. Our end results, whatever our successes are, whatever our failures are, whatever's going on, we live in an end results justify the means world where we are all, every single one of us, constantly making decisions based on supposed outcomes. Excel spreadsheets and bottom lines, to be told that our efforts would amount to at best be distracting, result in nothing, or gain nothing. Such a promise, such promises would make us all stop in our tracks. What if somebody told you today that how you're parenting will only end up in a distracted childhood? What if your financial advisor came to you today and said, hey, the way that you're living, the way that you're investing your finances, the way that you're doing life will result in nothing at the end. What if somebody came to you today and said, hey, how you're treating your body in the next five years, this course of action will end in your death. If we were told those future dynamics would be ours because of how we're handling ourselves, all of us, as I said, would stop in our tracks. And yet this is what Paul is offering 
as a description of life lived without love. Paul positions love not as a replacement or a piece or an either or proposition. He emphatically sinks it as necessary. Let me read these passages again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. There is no this instead of that with regards to all the things that Paul lists or love. There's an offered coexistence that love is meant to come alongside all that we say. Love is meant to be present with all that we know and all that we believe. Love is part and parcel to all that we are doing. There's an offered coexistence. And we see this throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're going to spend the next 11 weeks looking at this, drilling into this, unpacking what love in the form of Christ our God looks like and how this also is to be engaged in our lives. It makes me remember a few passages in particular that we see this love as a coexistent present reality. As Jesus comes along, this woman, this Samaritan woman in John chapter four, who's living in isolation, who's living in sin, who's not had one husband, but not two, not three, not four. And it goes on and on and he unpacks in a prophetic moment to say that, yeah, you're living with a man who's not your husband now. You're living in a place that is causing you harm. And more to the point, we understand that this Samaritan woman is probably living a life of emotional and physical abuse. And Jesus is appealing to her. He's able to unpack her isolated, separated, sinful life in the midst of still loving her. In John chapter 8, a woman who's caught in the midst of adultery is dragged by the religious people of the day. And their responsibility is such to stone her to death. And yet Jesus comes in and doesn't ignore the unhealth that's going on, but is able to speak to it and still be loving. I'm mindful of John chapter 21 as Jesus is engaging Peter after the resurrection. And he's asking Peter, hey, do you love me? And Peter emphatically responds, yes, I do. Then, then love is not just an expression, but it's also an action. He says, then go feed my sheep. He asks them again, hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then tend my sheep. And he asks them a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter at this point is frustrated. And Jesus responds in kind of says, hey, feed my sheep. Of course, we understand the context of the moment that Peter denied Jesus three times and then Jesus comes back and offers redemption, not once, not twice, but three times. He's given correction, adjustment, and a future reality while still offering the context and the understanding of love. Love is not something other than love is our everything. So let me pose a few questions to you this morning. How does love coexist in your life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the midst of marital relationships, yes, in the midst of your parent-child relationships, but also in the midst of your disagreements. 
in the midst of how you would convey truth, in the midst of figuring out how life goes. How does love coexist in your life with and towards other people? Another question, perhaps even more important for all of us to consider is, how does love shape your life? How does love shape your understanding of who you are? How does love shape your relationship with God? I think we would all do well to engage that in a conversation with those who are gathered around us today. Let me leave you with this benediction. May we not be a people whose investments distract, are empty, or result in nothing. May what we say, know, or believe and do be alongside the present active choosing to love God, others, as well as ourselves. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.